All right, welcome everybody to the Resource Roadmap Show with Therapy Insights. Um, I'm your host, Megan, and we have our writers, Jennifer and Stephanie, with us here today. Hello. Hello. Hi. And this is always a fun hour that we get to spend together because we talk about all of the new resources that we're releasing into the Access Pass library. And we'll get a chance to talk about different creative ways to use them as well as the research behind them. So um, this is available for ASHA CEUs. If you would like, you can just subscribe to the CEU portion of the Access Pass, and then you can find this episode on our website. I believe this is episode number five. And you can just answer a couple quiz questions and get ASHA CEU credit for watching or listening. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to share my screen so we can see the resources together. And all right. Hang on. I'm going to ditch a display monitor that I have plugged in. And there we go. All right. Yeah, our first resource is a one-page handout on ITZY Level 7, and I'll let Stephanie talk about this resource, but I do want to just have a full disclaimer in here for everybody, and you'll see this on all of our ITZY resources as well. Um, we're following ITZY guideline, guidelines by putting in a very bold disclaimer that these are not official ITZY education materials. And I understand why they have us put that in there because they're constantly updating their resources and they want to make sure that all SLPs have access to the most up-to-date information. So disclaimer, always go to the ITZY website to double check that any resources that you're using are aligned with um, ITZY's most updated information. But with that said, Stephanie, I'll pass it off to you to share more about this resource. Yes. So this is the ITZY level, regular, easy to chew. And Jennifer actually wrote all the other ITZY handouts that we've had so far, but she was so kind and let me have a chance to do one of them. So thank you, Jennifer. Yes. Um, so this one, I have been seeing a lot of patients where this regular, easy to chew is probably the most appropriate for them. I get to do modified barium swallow studies or video stroboscopies, whatever you'd like to call them, um, on Tuesday afternoons at my clinic. And I really like this level and patients typically like this level too, because they're coming to me and they're saying, you know, like steak or like dry foods are really hard to chew, but I still want to, you know, have some kind of quality of life and be able to eat quote unquote, some regular foods. And so they kind of find a lot of comfort in this easy to chew level. Um, so what I like to really stress about this level is this is for people who do have stronger chewing abilities um, and they can easily break down those soft tender foods without additional help of like cutting them into smaller pieces. And then I do like to, I read this myself that the person does um, you want to make sure that they don't have a choking risk because if they have a higher risk of choking, this regular easy to chew is not appropriate for them. Um, and so in the handout with Etsy, it also talks about, you know, if someone can't, is unsafe or needs to be supervised while eating, this diet may not be appropriate for them. 
Um, so, I mean, I don't know why that was the first time I had read it, reading the ITZY handout, um, but I thought that was an important piece to kind of highlight for this regular easy to chew. So if a person's unsafe and needs supervision, um, this is not the appropriate texture level for them. That would probably be an ITZY six or, or less or lower. Great. Yeah, and what I like about, I mean, ITZY gets super granular and specific about what's okay and what's not okay, which I think is helpful for kitchens. Mm -hmm. And then I like how you introduce this is like, this can provide a lot of comfort for people who are who need this texture level. And I think that's the framework that we all need to be looking at these diet recommendations from is like, are we making this recommendation because it's what the patient wants? Not necessarily mm -hmm. because what we're imposing onto them, unless it's a situation where they are genuinely not safe without something com someone coming in um, and making a rec recommendation on their behalf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I always have that conversation with my patient too. Like I know popcorn is a really touchy subject. Like people just love their popcorn. So we talk about, is there a way you could modify it? Like, could you enjoy popcorn maybe earlier in the day when you're not as tired versus, you know, that late night snack where, you know, you're maybe a little more tired and not really thinking about chewing as much. So just trying to be wherever that person is and trying to um, accommodate their, their goals too. Yeah. One thing I like about this handout too, is like, you can kind of make it um, different for each patient that you're giving this to. So it's kind of a handout where, you know, there's check boxes, you know, because there might be different reasons why, why you're recommending this versus, you know, this for some person versus another person. And so I think it's really helpful um, that it's just kind of laid out like that. Yeah. And Steph, when you said popcorn, it made me think of one facility I worked at. Where it was just like an ongoing conversation that I don't know ever got resolved, but the dietitian and I were like trying to team up and come up with an alternative for the popcorn Friday or whatever day it was that they would hand out popcorn. And there's so many great alternatives. Like now there's popcorners, which taste like popcorn, but they're, they don't have any kernels in them. And they're more like a chip mm -hmm. or like pirate's booty or any kind of puff or multiple solid kind of texture. Um, so trying to get facilities on board with serving these patients who need alternatives to an alternative treat. Um, at the same time that everybody else is getting a treat is an important SLP role, I think, in a lot of facilities. This kind of inspired me. I'm going to write it down, but we should make a handout just about popcorn and all the alternatives for popcorn. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I got that written down. <laughs> Love it. Our next resource is a one, two, three, four page handout called Glossary of Terminology in Chest X-rays Reports for the SLP. The first page has a list of terms and definitions. And the second page was really informative and educational to me about how the, the lobes of the lungs are situated. And then the third page has visual visuals for different um, lung conditions. So Jennifer, I'll pass it off to you to share more about this resource. Yes. Yeah, so I may have made this resource kind of selfishly for myself um, because I have really need this kind of working in the long-term acute care hospital. So a lot of my patients are there because they have acute or chronic um, respiratory failure, they have a lot of pulmonary illnesses. So they're getting chest x-rays pretty frequently 
um, and I'm reading write-ups a lot more frequently than I used to. And so I thought this would be a great resource for myself and for other SLPs, especially in the acute care um, setting. And so like Megan said, the first, the first page actually has just kind of um, what a chest x-ray may look like, like if you were actually looking at the image and it gives information about the different structures. So, you know, where, what the ribs kind of look like, what the silhouette of the heart looks like, um, where the clavicle is, the diaphragm, just kind of pointing out those different structures because it's really important for us to kind of understand, you know, the structures viewed and the terminology used so that we can best serve our patients. Um, and this might be a thought for the future, a future resource, um, but really kind of determining is is dysphagia is caused by pulmonary compromise or if pulmonary compromise may be causing dysphagia. And so that might be a topic for the future. But I kind of want to give a little scenario of a patient that I have right now and how I might use this glossary to help me. So um, this is actually a patient that I currently have, um, has a history of um, incomplete paraplegia from an accident back in the 80s. Uh, she just recently had an above-the-knee amputation. She's in our long-term acute care hospital for wound care needs right now. Um, and over the weekend, she actually was presenting with increasing not oxygen needs. Um, she reported dyspnea or shortness of breath. Um, and she does currently have bilateral pleural effusions due to something called, and I'll try not to mess this up, hypoalbuminemia. And so this is when the body doesn't make enough albumin protein to keep fluid in the blood vessels. And so that's actually what's causing her pleural effusion. So I'm going to read a report from a chest x-ray that was done right after she had something called a thoracentesis. And what this is, is a procedure to remove fluid from the thoracic cavity when somebody has too much. And so the findings are pretty short, um, but I'm gonna use our glossary as I'm reading along with the findings. So it says, persistent blunting of both costophrenic sulcus. And so if we kind of look at our glossary at the costophrenic angles, that's kind of the closest term that I've seen. And so this is a sharp differentiation where the chest wall and the diaphragm meet. And it specifically says in our glossary that if it is blunted, this is typically due to pleural effusions. And so they're still noticing that blunting. Um, they did mention improvement of the left lung post-thoracentesis and no obvious pneumothorax. And so if we look at our glossary for that. So that would be a small hole causing the presence of air or gas in the cavity between the lung and the chest wall. And this ultimately causes collapse of the lung. So it's just saying that she does not, they do not see this with her. Um, they do notice some atelectasis at the left lung base. So atelectasis is reduced inflammation of all or part of the lung. Um, and this is also kind of used along with collapse um, in, interchangeably. And so, again, it kind of just keeps talking about um, kind of the same information in different ways. And so that's how I might use the glossary to kind of help me when I'm looking at a written report. Um, like Megan said, the third page of this resource is really neat. So like she was mentioning, you know, I'm sure at some point I also learned this um, in school, but I do not remember it until I was making this resource. And so it really shows how kind of, depending on which 
way you're looking at the imaging, whether it's kind of an AP view or a lateral view, um, you can kind of see things a little bit differently. And so um, kind of the top of this page shows how if you're looking at that AP view, you know, if you see something um, kind of in the lower part of the lung, you really can't differentiate between whether it's the right lower lobe or the right middle lobe, just based on how, how they are. And so you really wouldn't know unless you're looking at that lateral view, whether it's in the lower lobe or the middle lobe that they're seeing some sort of condition. Um, kind of same thing on the left side, we just have an upper lobe and a lower lobe on the left. And so um, again, they kind of overlap. So that anterior posterior view, it's really hard to know which lobe that condition might actually be in. And looking at that lateral view helps you to know a little bit better. Um, and then the fourth page just shows us some, some imaging of what you might see for different conditions like atelectasis, pleural fusion, pneumonia, and a pneumothorax. So I really like this resource and I really hope that you guys can use it to your advantage and help you um, in your setting. Yeah, this is amazing. I love that you can just turn to the page that has all of the terms. And as you're reading the report, kind of refer back to that and figure out exactly what they're talking about. Um, and then because, because so much of what we do is tied into these pulmonology reports and we can get a lot of information out of them if we know how to read them. So thank yes. you for reading. Yeah, well done, Jennifer. I'm excited about this one. All right, we're gonna move on to the next resource, which is a one-page handout designed to share with patients. It's called The Role of Speech Therapy with Head and Neck Cancer, and Stephanie wrote this one. Yeah, so this handout is um, mainly with the patient in mind um, because, you know, when someone gets a diagnosis of head and neck cancer, you know, they may not always assume speech therapy right away because, I mean, who thinks of speech therapy right away with anything, right? But um, especially with head and neck cancer, we are involved in a lot of aspects of swallowing and speech and voice changes um, that can happen with that head and neck cancer treatment. So it just really does a nice job of explaining what head and neck cancer is, what it involves, um, kind of where those tumors could develop in the body, um, some just kind of basic uh, treatment options, but again, just explaining like the multidisciplinary team really helps determine for that specific person what their body needs for treatment. And then it kind of breaks down why a speech therapist is involved and how we recommend, you know, nutrition, hydration. Uh, we come up with strategies for how to swallow appropriately when changes might happen. Um, we could talk to the patients about how you know, a swallow of favorite foods might change if they're having a combination of like radiation and chemotherapy. Um, so it just does a nice little basic job of kind of explaining what a speech therapist does, but then opens the door for that personal conversation to have directly with the patient. Um, and just kind of also maybe spark some questions or conversations because talking about like a proactive swallow therapy someone might not realize that doing swallow therapy exercises even before treatment starts is research driven and supported. Um, so I am really excited about this handout. 
last week, I think it was, I did a swallow study for a patient who had head neck cancer treatment back in 1992. And he then had a reconstructed jar in 1998. But seeing me last week was the first time he had ever seen a speech therapist. And he was noticing some swallow changes because he just got like new permanent dentures. And because he got the permanent teeth, he was like, my swallow has changed. So his doctor referred him for a swallow study, but really his pharyngeal swallow is very impaired. It's not so much his teeth, but I think if I'm making my best guess, his tongue position was probably different before he got his permanent teeth. And so maybe that was kind of a a change for him, but he wasn't really having the sensation that when he swallowed anything, he has to swallow it like four times before it will partially clear his pharyngeal area. He wasn't aspirating or anything, but it was just mind-blowing. And he was just so involved in learning about swallow anatomy. He had never learned about swallow anatomy before. And he's like, can I please come back and see you? And I'm like, yes, we can definitely talk about education. We can talk about strategies. I'm a little apprehensive with like actual exercise, like potential being it's been 30 some years since you've had head and neck cancer and a lot of chemo and a lot of surgeries. But he's like, no, no, no. Like, I just want to learn about this. And so he's going to come back for some swallow therapy, just kind of more education based. Cause I, like I said, I was a little cautious about like how much prognosis wise we can do to kind of strengthen when there's so many physical changes that's happened for him. Um, But yeah, I'm like this handout would have been perfect for him, but it just kind of opened my eyes to like, I just assumed, I guess that speech therapy was involved years and years ago, but maybe that's just like more new for head and neck cancer. But I have another situation just like that. I have a patient right now who had uh, nasopharyngeal cancer and it was about 19 years ago. And initially his wife said that he has never had a swallow evaluation done. Now he has been NPO grossly for 19 years. He takes, you know, very small sips of water for pleasure, but besides for that, he has been NPO. I, I, do realize like 20 years ago, speech therapy was definitely different. And I wish they had, you know, handouts like this. And we did, we were more involved in head and neck cancer at that time. I just can't even imagine going that long with not ever understanding why or wanting to fix it or try to work towards getting back to swallowing. I think a big thing for him was that the radiation really affected this taste as well. And so he doesn't really have a desire to eat anymore because he knows his taste really isn't there, but I just, it blows my mind that there are people that have gone that long and that really have never been involved in speech therapy. And I feel like we do have a big, I don't know, we need to get more involved in this area. And I think we are doing that now in this day and age, but there's a big need yeah. for sure. I remember mm-hmm. asking that guy last week real quick, Megan, and then I said, you hadn't seen a speech therapist before. He goes, no. And I'm like, nobody ever brought up this. I was just so grateful to be alive that I didn't care. And so that was kind of his, like, he just kept saying, I was, I'm alive. Like I'm functioning. Like I thought that was going to kill me and I'm alive. I just kind of can't believe that 
nobody has said anything in the last 20 years as to like a swallow evaluation or any sort of speech therapy. Yeah, well, he, again, didn't have any swallowing problems until he got permanent teeth. So I don't know. Hmm. You know what I learned from Dr. Ianessa Humbert on the evidence and argument podcast that blew my mind was that um, dysphagia education has not been a part, an official part of grad school education. Like that started in the 2000s. So then you think about like, okay, so most of the people who trained me in grad school or older, they, they did not get any training in dysphagia. I mean, the, the, obviously the person who taught my dysphagia course had training, in it, but like, it just is not collectively valued in a lot of grad school settings. Cause it's so freaking new. <laughs> like, and I, my hope is that we continue to like um, expand dysphagia education in grad school programs so that we can all feel more confident and comfortable with the education that we're getting. And then when we graduate, we don't get sucked into these overpriced certification programs that kind of prey on our insecurities and the fact that maybe we didn't get the best education in grad school. But like to your, your, like the stories that you guys are talking about, like I, I think that it comes down to referrals and physicians and oncologists making referrals and they just don't know who we are or what we do. And so I'm hoping that our generation and the next generations of SLPs are going to do a better job of not only educating patients on what our role is, but educating our colleagues, interdisciplinary colleagues and getting those referrals in place because it's so important. Like, if I am ever diagnosed with head and neck cancer, like I, you bet there will be an SLP on my team because I know the value that they bring, but so many people are just unaware. So yeah, we have not even after the fact or after treatment, yeah. it's really important to get them in even before yeah. treatment is even done to get a baseline. And I mean, I'm very fortunate where the clinic I work, we do have this exceptional relationship with oncology doctors. And they are always sending people to speech therapy before they even have surgery or treatment. And they're like, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm here. I'm like, well, I'm glad you are. We got lots to talk about. And so it's, it's really, I know it's not the norm to have that really good relationship with the doctors, but um, hopefully our profession can kind of build that bridge so it can be very strong. Yeah. And it could start with like print out 20 copies of this and go meet with the oncologist at your facility or in your community and just start having these conversations and providing these resources. Um, because I guarantee like they'll be all about it. Like people want to provide good care. They want to offer options for their patients. Um, and so I think any SLP who takes the initiative to try to build those connections is going to be welcomed mostly. Um, Absolutely. But... Okay. Anything else? Any other thoughts? All right. This brings up um, an article snapshot that Stephanie wrote that's related to this topic. So Stephanie, I'll let you talk about this one. Yeah. So this one's called Dysphagia, Voice Problems, and Pain in Head and Neck Cancer Patients. It was written in 2021. I don't think I'm going to say her name right, um, but it's uh, Zabrilia um, Witchman. I think that's a woman. I don't really know, um, but it's their team who wrote this article. 
And, or, and so what they kind of found, they were looking at the E10 to try to figure out if that was a good, um, valid and reliable tool for kind of screening for swallowing concerns. And they did find that it was a good tool for people with head and neck cancer. It just kind of, as you know, that straightforward um, questions that we're most, we're all familiar with, and it just kind of opens conversation. Um, sometimes patients don't realize when they're answering, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess I do have a problem swallowing pills or, or whatever. Um, speech therapists should note that dysphagia is considered an independent risk factor for worse survival of patients with head and neck cancer. I didn't realize that before reading this article, but um, yeah, swallowing is a big risk factor for us to consider trying to for overall quality of life and survival for the patient. Um, in this study, there were no significant differences in dysphagia or voice problems between the males and the females. And then they found for pain, it was often underreported by patients. And in this study specifically, the females reported more pain often than the males. So this is just something that the entire multidisciplinary team should kind of keep on their radar and just, you know, bring up that question of um, assessing pain. Um, because, you know, if, if you're given a patient permission and asking question, like, is pain something you're thinking about? Maybe it's that opportunity for them to kind of bring it up. And then the appropriate team members can be alerted or see if anything can be modified for that patient. And then typically people with head and neck cancer are still working. Um, so having dysphagia or voice problems can significantly impact their quality of life and their ability to work or return to work. So that's also something the speech therapist should be thinking about. Um, if a patient does need a modified diet, maybe thinking creatively, helping them meal plan in a sense, or helping them figure out some alternatives um, for quick, easy meals at work if they're, you know, more self-conscious about I don't really want to eat in front of my colleagues, but I, I know I need nutrition. So, you know, the speech therapist, maybe the nutrition dietitian could be collaborating on um, maybe sharing how the patient's feeling or, you know, the speech therapist, we aren't nutritionists or dietitians. So that really is more of the other um, role of that person, but at least we can bring that to their attention. So we can all as a team think about that person's quality of life. Yeah. Did you guys know that dysphagia was an independent risk factor? Nope. No, but I could see that looking back. Yeah. Yeah, I know it makes sense, right? But why do we not think about some of these things? Yeah. Yeah. And the EAT10 is freely available online. And if you're an Access Pass member, you can also access it in our libraries. We just have a version that looks pretty. So it's in there if you need it. Absolutely. All right, moving on to the next resource. This is a three-page uh, or three-page three resource, mostly for therapists. And this is one that I think I had maybe requested, or <laughs> like as I was learning to do video solo studies, I was a little overwhelmed with like taking all of the notes and tracking everything that was being tested and what I was seeing. So this is um, a very nice comprehensive sort of checklist and notes section for people who are doing video swallow studies. 
Jennifer, anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to kind of give an example of me using this with one of my patients recently. So kind of that first page um, is a area where we can provide information about the patient maybe before we actually do the video swallow study. So thinking about, you know, what their oral motor exam looked like. What does their speech sound like? Can their speech or voice kind of be indicative of what you might see uh, with the vocal folds moving, protecting the airway and things like that on the video swallow study? Um, and just kind of how is cognition might maybe impacting swallowing? So are they lethargic? Are they alert? Are they agitated, confused, oriented, cooperative? You know, all of that does play a factor in swallowing and being able to use compensatory strategies and kind of knowing who is appropriate to look at that with and who may not be. And so kind of for a recent patient of mine, you know, she was really lethargic at the time, had difficulty really following directions consistently to be able to do a full oral motor examination. Um, speech was also very limited, just not very interactive. Um, at times she was grossly nonverbal, other times she was a little bit more interactive answering questions, but didn't often kind of initiate uh, conversation. Uh, she inconsistently followed, I would say, just very basic one-step directions, and um, I said kind of no at the time of her being able to communicate her wants and needs. Now, yes, she can verbalize that if she is alert. Um, however, that cognition was kind of getting in the way um, of her being able to do that at times, and so it was very inconsistent. The second page kind of lets us talk about things um, maybe not that we directly see on the screen during a video swallow study. So just talking about, you know, management of secretions or is the patient managing those themselves? Are they drooling? Are they aware of that? Are they able to feed themselves? Um, you know, are there any adaptive devices that you tried during the meals? So sometimes we might try like a Proveil cup um, that controls the sip size to see if, you know, our patient can tolerate thin liquids rather than having to go on those nectar thick liquids just with being able to control that sip size a little bit better. You know, how is their intake? Are they very impulsive? Are they shoveling food in their mouth without swallowing before putting that next bite in? You know, is there any oral residue? So this is, might be something that you comment on while you're doing the study. Um, so with my patient, she definitely had reduced kind of manipulation and propulsion of the bolus. And so I kind of wrote that in the oral residue area. Um, she had residue on the tongue and kind of in the lateral sulci. Um, she did not have any throat clearing during the video swallow study, um, but there was also no aspiration. Um, there was no change in vocal quality. Again, she wasn't really talking a lot. Um, and we did not trial any modifications or kind of compensatory strategies just because cognitively we didn't feel like she would be able to carry those over into mealtime if, if we felt that that was needed without somebody having to be there, you know, all the time. Um, and so the third sheet just kind of has a checklist of all the different consistencies that you may be trialing, um, you know, whether, how did you present it from the spoon, from the cup edge, the straw, did you present it, did the patient present it themselves to be a little bit more natural. Um, and so for this patient, we tried nectar thick liquids by the straw. There was no um, penetration or aspiration with that. So I really didn't write any notes in that section. Uh, thin liquids, we tried from the spoon and from the straw. So she had kind of varying delayed swallow initiation with the thin liquids at worst within the laryngeal vestibule or, um, and so 
penetration to the true vocal cords. It was not ejected. She had no response to that. So I kind of wrote all that information beside the thin liquid section um, puree. It was provided by the SLP. No real issues with that. So I didn't really write any notes there. And then the coarse solids provided by the SLP, she did have mild to moderate follicular residue um, and kind of limited attempts to clear that. And so I wrote that information in the notes section. I just feel like this helps me organize for when I'm doing my write-up as well. And I think it's kind of really interesting that at my hospital, we actually have a form that's very similar to this that they keep down in radiology. And after our video swallow studies, we're supposed to fill them out and give them to the radiologist for when they do their notes. I think just trying to be consistent with ours as well. And, you know, obviously it's things that we've talked about um, during the video swallow study, but just to kind of help them remember, because I think they're doing a lot of things back to back. And sometimes it's hard to remember if they're doing, you know, three or four video swallow studies back to back, kind of which one was which they can go look at the video, but I think it's just easier for them to have this kind of write up to help them. So if you don't have that at your hospital, maybe you could even use this um, in that department as well. Yeah, I love this. So that's interesting. So does the radiologist write the note? Do So they write their own note too, kind of in the imaging portion of our medical record system, they'll write a little blurb that basically just says, was there aspiration penetration of any materials? They don't go into depth, but they at least kind of write aspiration penetration. Okay. And then you write your own note. So the mm -hmm. hospital where I am doing PRN work, they don't have a radiologist present. What are mm -hmm. you guys? I've, I've been at hospitals that are like that. Ours is either a radiologist or like a PA is their physician's assistant. So who is running the, the pedal then? You are as you're feeding them too, or a radiology technician? Technician. Okay. So when at our clinic, we have a, a radiology technician. I always call him a rad tech. So I'm trying to say the whole name. Um, and then we have a radiologist and then myself. Um, so the, the radiology tech has a sheet that they take notes. So I kind of dictate as I'm doing everything. Um, and so they take the notes and then review it with me, give that to the radiologist. Um, and then I kind of just have done it so many times that I kind of have a mental and I write notes on my schedule um, because personally, I just, I don't have the time to be helping with the foods, watching the screen and taking notes. But I think it's just been so many of, I've done so many of them now. It's just mm -hmm. a little bit different for me. Yeah. Great. But this is a great form for, for people who are newly getting into doing video swallow studies because it can be overwhelming. I, I know that. Yes. Okay. Sorry, Jennifer. I try to switch these up to alternate, but apparently I didn't do that. So you're okay. up again. <laughs> this is a three-page handout um, all about the treatment of Wernicke's aphasia. And I know we're going to do a little bit of role-playing and I'm going to play the person with aphasia, but I just want to start out by saying this is a fantastic resource. Like if you get a client that walks through your doors that has Wernicke's aphasia and you're like, oh my gosh, where do I even start? You start here. <laughs> yes. So I feel like I did not have a lot of these patients until recently, and now I'm getting a lot of patients with Wernicke's aphasia. And so 
sometimes I've felt a little bit lost as to what to do with these patients. These are the patients where it really seems like they cannot do any sort of structured task. It really just needs to be unstructured and kind of related to context, which we're getting ready to talk to. So as you all probably know, you know, Wernicke's aphasia is also known as fluent aphasia, or you might also hear receptive aphasia. Um, and this is due to damage to the left posterior temporal, temporal region or Wernicke's area. And this is the part of the brain that processes the meaning of words. So these patients are having a lot of difficulty with understanding uh, what you're saying. They have usually pretty poor awareness. Um, a lot of times their speech might be, made, might be made up of jargon and they don't really realize that they're not making a lot of sense. And so I've really wanted to kind of look at more research related to treatment of Wernicke's aphasia. And unfortunately, there is a lot less research related to this type of aphasia compared to like Broca's aphasia and more of those expressive language impairments. And so there's kind of two different treatments that I talk about in this resource. So one is by Robert Marshall, and he's a research in our field. And he, he um, proposed a context-based approach to treatment of Wernicke's aphasia. And so the reason he proposed this is just because it's more of an authentic communicative or communication um, context. And so what we mean by context is kind of the physical and social circumstances that form the setting for an idea, event, or statement in which it can be fully understood. And so using context-based approach has kind of shown to improve self-awareness, uh, recognition of successful and unsuccessful attempts at communication. Um, it helps improve self-monitoring. Um, our goal is to kind of reduce self-critical comments. You know, a lot of times our patients may say silly things like, oh, I'm dumb when I can't think of that word and just kind of wanting to try to remove some of those self-critical comments. Um, it's used to kind of reinforce positive energy as to what works and increases kind of the use of compensatory strategies. So before starting this type of treatment, you always want to do, you know, the usual you know, completing an interview, it's really important for you to understand the person's with aphasia strengths and weaknesses, um, and also completing kind of your normal standardized evaluation if you need to with some maybe informal and formal um, methods. And so one thing that was recommended for the context-based approach is the communication activities of daily living or the cattle. I don't know, have you two, have you heard of the cattle? or used it before for assessment? I've heard of it. I don't, I have not used it. I have not um, used it. I've used it a few times, so I can't really go into detail. It's been a while, but I know it was just, again, more functional, like showing uh, like a weather um, app and having to answer questions related to, you know, the temperature and things like that, or um, just looking at different things that you might have to in daily life and just being able to communicate about those things. So, um, I also recommend just doing, looking at confrontational naming and a picture description, just as these evaluations or assessments are a little bit more, they allow for more freedom of the person to respond. And so you're not, it's a little less structured. And like we know that um, those individuals with Wernicke's aphasia does better with. Um, as always, it's really important when you're doing treatment to, you know, use topics of interest, but it's really important with this context-based approach is to also have you know, some knowledge of that topic as well so that you can help the person best. You know, if I'm talking about politics with my patient, I'm probably not going to be able to help them very well because I do not really, you know, 
get into politics a lot. Now, if it was more like sports, I really love sports. And so I feel like I could, you know, have a good conversation or help somebody more related to that topic. Um, and it's really important to remember that communication partner is not in control of this treatment and they do not provide corrections of errors necessarily, but they do provide kind of guidance and assistance in that context of communication. So I think Megan and I are going to kind of give an example of how we might use a context-based approach. Um, so I kind of think about somebody in the hospital that I'm working with. I might walk into their room and, and notice something. So um, I'll change it up a little bit and say, Mrs. Smith, since you're a woman. So Mrs. Smith, I see that you have a Georgia ring on your finger. Um, and then parentheses, you know, sorry. Sorry about that. So I see you have a Georgia ring on your finger. You betcha. Did you go to Georgia? I sure did. Are you a football fan? Go dogs. Go SEC. I'm a South Carolina Gamecock fan. I guess we're rivals. The SEP is the best. Yes, I agree. The SEC is the best division. You have to play those cats. Tigers. I mean, tigers. We do play a few tigers, but I bet you're referring to Clemson. We beat them last year. And so that just kind of shows like as we were doing that a little bit of where um, you know, when Megan said the SEP, and so I didn't necessarily say, oh, you're wrong. You said that wrong. In that next sentence that I gave, I kind of corrected her and said, yes, the SEC. And I might kind of emphasize that C to um, just bring awareness to that error. And then at the end, I just kind of summarized the information that was provided by her just to kind of show that I did understand what she was saying there. So that's just kind of an example of using context-based approach, you know, using things in the patient's rooms, using things that they bring with you to therapy if it's an outpatient therapy session. Um, I know with our outpatient therapy, we very thankfully get to go out in the community a lot because it's located in downtown Greenville. And so, you know, maybe picking places of the person's interest that can really kind of bring this context-based approach into life a little bit more um, can be helpful. And then there's one other treatment for aphasia I'm going to talk about and of Wernicke's aphasia. And I'm gonna just also mention another um, material that we have that I'm gonna be using while I demonstrate this treatment of Wernicke's aphasia. So we have a treatment in the access, the access library that's called visual scanning and language task. And so what that is, it's actually 48 pictures and written words um, that go together. And so I use this a lot to have them laminated and it's very helpful, especially when I'm working with people with aphasia. But if you don't know about that, you should definitely go take a look. Megan's gonna turn it up right now, just so that you guys can see it. Visual scanning plus language task, yep. And then I think there's a video on there that we can. Oh, no, this is a different one. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just love these for great picture cards, great color. And they have the written word along with them. 
classic. Yes, I use this for a lot of different types of treatment. It's very helpful. So I'm going to kind of go over this other treatment for Wernicke's aphasia. Um, this is for kind of moderate to severely Im impaired auditory comprehension. Um, and so I'm going to kind of go through the steps and model how you might use it. So the first step or kind of baseline is what you want to get is kind of spoken word to picture matching. So you might have... Had it perfectly on this ready to go and tape, but it fell down. So I have these pictures here. And so what you're going to do is spoken word to picture matching. So you might just say, which picture is a bird? And so it also mentions having either a phonemic or a semantic foil. So since our target word is bird for this activity, my semantic foil is gonna be the dog over here since they're both in that animal category. And so that's the first step. So based on that baseline, if the person with aphasia is correct, you're gonna choose a new target picture or word. If they're incorrect, you're gonna continue with the following steps. So I'm just gonna go through as if the person is um, incorrect on that baseline. So the step one says is about reading comprehension. So you place the target written word in lowercase letters under the field of six pictures. So as these come with those written words, it's very helpful. And so I hold this written picture here, or written word here underneath, and I'll say, which picture goes with this word? And so if the person with aphasia is correct this time, you're going to continue on with the next step. If they're incorrect, you're going to choose a new target item and return to this item at a later time. So you're really just kind of trying to kind of increase the steps with each of these. Um, step two, so we're going to pretend that they were correct with that one. So is oral reading. So this time you remove all of the pictures and only show the target written word and ask, what is this word? Read it out loud. Again, if the person with aphasia is correct, you're gonna to continue to the next step, which is repetition. So again, you're gonna remove the target written word and instruct, repeat after me, bird. And then if they get that correct, you move on to the last step, which is step four related to auditory comprehension. So what you do with this one, which might be a little bit difficult for me right now, is you just kind of rearrange these pictures in front of them, moving them around. And then again, you say, which one is the bird? And see if they can find the correct item. <laughs> and so kind of once a target is achieved um, for all four steps across two consecutive therapy sessions, that item is removed from practice is what they recommend for this type of but I am excited to try some of these treatments with my patients that have more acute aphasia. I don't have any right now, but I'm excited in the future once I have them just to see if this is, this helps a little bit more than what yeah. I've done in the past. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think so much of it is just slowing down, meeting them where they are, trying to give as much context as possible. And like you're saying, really get to know them and then do a little research into what they're interested in and the things that are meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Wonderful. Okay. And I think we have one last article snapshot related to this that Stephanie's going to guide us through. Yes. So this, um, I've had a few patients with Wernicke's aphasia as well. And um, unfortunately in my situation, they were more like moderate, closer to severe. Um, And so I was trying to find some research to kind of go along with Jennifer's topic. Um, So this one, this article is called Auditory Training Changes, Temporal Lobe Connectivity with Wernicke's Aphasia, a Randomized Trial. And this one was done in 2017 by Crinin and his team, uh, or their team. I don't know if that's a woman or a male or non-binary. So this article They were trying to find some ways to kind of improve phonological training for people with moderate to severe Wernicke's aphasia. And so they had a subgroup that you had a placebo, and then they had another subgroup that received a a medication called Dynzapil. It's a drug that um, it, it hasn't, it's like a neurotransmitter of sorts. So it's supposed to help kind of increase the connectivity. Um, for these tasks, more or less. Um, the, the trouble with the research for Wernicke's aphasia is they were kind of talking about it's limited because people with moderate to severe Wernicke's aphasia or global aphasia, um, often patients have reduced insight into their deficits and they don't really see the buy-in to therapy um, or long-term speech therapy. Um, So I can kind of give an example of a patient I've worked with where I have experienced that as well. So kind of just that insight and just not no buy-in is really one of our biggest barriers of why we don't have a lot of research for this population of people we work with. Um, The left hemisphere did recruit more help from the right hemisphere for those people with severe Wernicke's aphasia. Um, so then I kind of talked about that donzapil drug is commonly used to treat Alzheimer's. It, it, stops, it stops a specific neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, from being broken down and thus it increases the supply of that neurotransmitter. So it was hypothesized that this drug could assist with language for people with Wernicke's aphasia, um, but unfortunately that was not proven to be true in the study. Um, so kind of speaking... From my personal experience of the couple of people I've had with Wernicke's aphasia is um, that that buy-in to therapy was all was the biggest barrier. And this patient specifically, I'm thinking about, he just kind of talked and talked and talked about how he doesn't really have a problem. There is no issues. He doesn't understand why he's here. And because he had severe Wernicke's, he didn't, he could not understand what I was saying. He couldn't understand when we kind of wrote things down for him. Um, and unfortunately for him, he he was kind of living with relatives, like every two weeks he would change living situations. So that really wasn't stable for him either in, to come to therapy consistently. Um, so I'm not really sure what happened um, with that patient. I think he moved out of state to be with a, another family member a little bit more long-term. Um, but yeah, this is such a, a hard area of speech therapy, I know, and I wish we had more research to kind of help us. That probably wasn't helpful for just communication partner training and just figuring out how to communicate best with family too. It, yeah, and and we tried to get family to come and 
they just were like, all I can do is drop them off. Like I need some time alone. Cause they were respite care more or less to come to therapy because this gentleman did not understand why he couldn't go back to work, why he couldn't drive, why people kept saying he couldn't do anything. So unfortunately that was a really sad situation. Um, yeah. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting hypothesis or hypothesis to like mm-hmm. try to test existing drugs to help a population that really needs help. That's not going to get mm-hmm. you know a full drug trial for sure. Mm-hmm. So trying to yeah. adapt other drugs for other diagnoses that will get more attention and money. Um, yeah, but hopefully, it was a good, it was a, yeah, maybe those was a good trying. idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. We're going to move on to our case study. This is um, where we get to talk about interesting cases that are completely fictional. And then we can bring in resources from the library that we might use to address these cases. And also we just talk about our different perspectives and experiences. I will read this case study out loud. This is about Tegan. Tegan is an SLP who works in a large facility that offers inpatient rehabilitation as well as long-term care. They started the job a few weeks ago and have noticed a lack of oral care throughout the facility, which is particularly alarming for the patients on their caseload who are at risk for respiratory compromise when eating and drinking. Tegan documents the need for oral care as well as instructions, but doesn't see a lot of follow-through. They attempt to build relationships with the nurses, but there is not currently a precedent for amicable relationships between SLPs and nurses in the facility, and there's a growing divide between the two teams. When they approach their colleagues about the issue, their SLP colleagues respond with frustration towards the nursing staff, stating that they never listen or follow through. Stephanie, you picked out a one-page handout called Oral Care and Aspiration Pneumonia. Do you want to talk about this resource and talk about any thoughts or ideas or perspectives you have about this case? Yeah, so I know when I worked in a a skilled nursing facility, we had long-term care, short-term care, inpatient or outpatient therapy too. And, you know, oral care is always that really important thing that, you know, we stress as speech pathologists because we know how what the ramifications can be if it's not addressed appropriately. So I've always loved this oldie but a goodie handout we've had here, um, oral care and aspiration pneumonia. So it really just explains that connection between having that oral bacteria and if someone swallows wrong and they aspirate it, that oral bacteria will then enter the trachea as well. And it then will increase the risks for pneumonia to develop from aspiration. So it just really talks about like a good oral care program is to get rid of that biofilm or that residue that's kind of in the mouth. Um, And so really important, like cleaning those dentures, not leaving them in overnight, um, using mouthwash when appropriate. Um, Sometimes that can be difficult for people who can't really tolerate and liquids well because they don't want them to like spill that back into their pharyngeal area um and then it just talks about you know signs of poor oral hygiene so um maybe some things that people don't realize and then kind of inviting the nursing staff and the um, nursing assistants to have that conversation about you know these are maybe some signs you want to look for like maybe we need to have the patient open their mouth 
and just look inside and, and brush their teeth more. And um, I know it's just sometimes one more thing, but it is very important um, to keep those patients healthy. Yeah. All right, Jennifer, what are your thoughts about this case? Yes, so that was a good handout, especially if I feel like the other um, staff members may not really understand like why, like why are we stressing it so much and just understanding why it's important. Um, when I was looking for a resource for this case study, I was actually looking for one related to teamwork. So it made gave me some ideas for things in the future. Um, but I chose one that we already have related to staff cue cards, um, just kind of reminders in the room that I feel like we can put around just kind of as a visual reminder, because we're all very busy when we're working. And, you know, although it's really important that we treat our patients like they're kind of our only patients, um, it's reality that a lot of times our nurses have five or more patients at a time. And, um, their time can be very limited and not that that is an excuse, but they just might need some visual reminders as well. Um, but also kind of thinking about just like teamwork in general, I think it's really important in uh, my hospital system, they did a lot of uh conscious professionalism and talking about stories. You know, we all have stories. You know, my story is going to be different from your story because we both have different perspectives. And just knowing that kind of what I think is my story and, you know, part of my story is true, but part of it might be just something that I'm kind of making up in my head that I don't really know. And I think it's really important for us to remember that. And, you know, I think the end of this case study talked about how, SLP colleagues see being frustrated with teammates for never feeling like they listen or follow through. And maybe that's just where you sit down and have a conversation with them, you know, tell them why that you're frustrated and why you're frustrated. And, you know, maybe just see if, if it's maybe something the way that you're coming across, maybe you're not approaching them in a way that you should approach them. And so just kind of thinking about, you know, how you're approaching a person as well as how they're responding and, you know, kind of what you're putting into it, what they're putting into it. And just knowing that we all have different perspectives and, you know, I'm the type of person that want to get along with everybody. And I want to, I'm always, you know, I'm in the hospital because I'm there to care for people. I want to help my teammates. And so just trying to figure out whatever, I can do to also help them and support them best and thinking about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just the, when you said we all have a story, you have a story, they have a story, I have a story. I think one phrase that has been helpful for me in my life, whether I use it in conversation with somebody or I just use it to kind of pause and think through what I'm feeling is the phrase, and this is from Brene Brown in her research, but the phrase, uh, the story I'm telling myself is. And so that reminds me that it's a story I'm telling myself maybe about another person. So in this situation, if I were Tegan or another member of the staff, the story I'm telling myself is that nurses don't care enough to provide oral care. And, and then at least for me, I would probably sit with that and be like, is that true? Can I really know that that's true? And there might there be other reasons that they're not providing oral care. And really the biggest reason might just be the relationships between SLPs and nurses. And so like I put in a photo of these donuts, these Vera don't, vegan donuts in Missoula. That's probably one thing that I would take <laughs> into the facility is like, 
some peace offering, some way to build connections, something light and fun, try to find a way to connect with other staff members that's not just a confrontation about this conversation. And I think so much of our job really does encompass leadership and leadership is about how you um, inspire a culture of care, especially in healthcare. And one thing that I've also learned is like, we don't motivate other people, like other people have their own internal motivations and we just have to figure out what that is. And so I think healthcare sometimes gets caught up in these silos. And then when you get these tensions between different disciplines, oftentimes that just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then it's not about the oral care. It's about disrespect. It's about um, not valuing each other. And then those are bigger issues that really need to be resolved with leadership. And I think anybody can be a leader in any position. And I think all of us can tell when we walk into a facility and there's good, strong relationships that an SLP has developed. Um, or when those are not present. And so I think that the way that we interact with our colleagues, the, the leadership that we provide can make a huge difference in the quality of care that patients receive. And I've been doing this podcast with Dr. Jeanette Benegas called Other SLPs Pockets. And we just released an episode today about an SLP who's getting paid. She started at $32 an hour to work at one of the top hospitals in the country, which is incredibly low, just so everybody knows. <laughs> and we were talking about this idea of turnover and the fact that there's so many people in line to take her job that the facility does not necessarily care enough to pay these SLPs more to keep them on staff. And I think what those facilities are missing out on and what those key decision makers and managers aren't seeing is all of the work that goes into building these relationships with nurses, with dietitians, with the kitchen staff. There's so much nuance to our jobs and there's so much relationship building. And when facilities don't care enough to pay SLPs what they're worth, and they just go through SLP after SLP, you're, you're going to run into situations like what Tegan's running into here, um, where there's just issues with staff not working and functioning as a cohesive team. So those are my thoughts on that. And then I also threw in this <laughs> other oral health or oral care handout, but we have a lot of them in our libraries. If you just search for oral care, or if you use the drop down and go to dysphagia oral care, you can find all of them. Um, but I just put a note in here. I've just remembered that um, I can't really read it. So I'm going to escape out of there. All of the oral care handouts in the world cannot replace what collegiality, respect, and genuine curiosity can accomplish. So like what Jennifer was talking about, just listen to the stories, think about what those stories are telling us and what they mean. And like I said, leadership is a core skill of being an SLP and an interdisciplinary team. All right, we're going to wrap up with some resources you might be interested in that came from the OT and PT teams this month. The OT team wrote a resource called Spot the Difference. So this is a visual attention kind of task where you're uh, visually attending to two different images, one at the top of the page and one at the bottom. You could also cut these, uh, cut the page in half and have it be left and right. 
and there's just minor differences between the two pictures that they're looking for. Um, and then there's an answer key on the first page. And the PT team came out with the one page handout about functional neurological disorder. And I learned a lot from this. I didn't, I didn't really know this was a thing. I'm assuming PTs probably encounter it more than SLPs, but I could also see people, uh, or I could also see a case where SLPs might be the first person to encounter someone with functional neurological disorder. So if you want to read more about that and have a resource for your patients, that is now in the library. And if you want instant access to all of these resources and hundreds more, you can find them inside the Access Pass library at therapyinsights.com. Um, brand new this month, you can also individually purchase these resources on Etsy. You can find us on Etsy at Therapy Insights. And all of the links that we mentioned to all of the resources are available in the show notes. If you have any questions for us or requests, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. If you're a member of the Access Pass, please be sure to vote for what we create next. And we'll have a new episode coming on August 1st. So we will see you then. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Jennifer. Bye. Bye, everyone.